0: Hi there. Welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping community financial institutions master the art of fixed income investments. If you're working for a community bank or credit union and you have responsibilities for the investment portfolio, you've come to the right place. I'll be your personal investment guide as we help you boost your fixed income investment knowledge, level up your portfolio management skills, and help you gain the know-how you need to help your institution achieve its financial goals. In this episode, we're going to begin exploring the different types of fixed income investments a community banker might want to consider for the investment portfolio. Today, we'll be covering municipal bonds. They can offer some great benefits, but there are also some moving parts and other things to consider. So let's take a look Get ready to dive in and get started. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Bond Investment Mentor. I'm glad you stopped by. As I mentioned in a recent episode, we're going to begin taking a look at the different investment types that a community banker can consider for their institution's investment portfolio. While you may be aware of and familiar with certain types of investments, it's good to understand all the tools in the investment toolbox. That way, an investment portfolio manager doesn't miss an opportunity just because they weren't considering a certain type of investment. Today, we're going to start our exploration by examining municipal bonds. I'll dig into the basics of muni bonds, and we'll talk about an important process you need to keep in mind when you're comparing some municipal bonds to alternative fixed income securities. Now, I'm going to warn you now, this episode is going to get a little mathy shortly, so grab some caffeine if you need it. But first, let's take a quick look at happenings related to the bond markets this week. We had a couple of pieces of key inflation news announced this week. Both the latest consumer price and producer price index data were released. Both indices came in a little better than expected, with some in the market saying that inflation was slowing and providing the Federal Reserve room to continue pausing or even stop further tightening in monetary policy. However, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. First, a major reason for the improvement in the reports, particularly the year-over-year CPI data, was that gasoline prices were much higher a year ago, and they were a big contributor to higher inflation levels. Now that those old data points are falling off, it's contributing to better results. In addition, while the core CPI, which backs out food and energy prices, did slow last month, I don't think it's at the level that might set off the all-clear from the Fed. Different Fed representatives have been saying that they don't think they're done yet with interest rates, and the markets are in line with that sentiment, at least in the near term. As of Friday's close, Fed funds futures show a 92% chance the FOMC will hike rates by a quarter point on July 26th. After that, the markets believe the Fed will stop further tightening and begin a true pause before beginning to cut rates sometime next year. Whether a move by the FOMC in a couple of weeks will be its last remains to be seen, as comments from what I call the Fed heads appear to remain open to further rate hikes after July. While Fed Governor Christopher Waller welcomed the inflation news in comments he made this past week, he remained cautious about whether one month's good news was part of an ongoing larger trend. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester voiced a similar sentiment, saying that there was still room in her mind for additional rate hikes. In other Fed news, this past week we learned that a long-standing voice among the Fed heads is stepping down. St. Louis Federal Reserve President Jim Bullard is leaving his position to become the dean of Purdue University's business school. He became president of the St. Louis Fed in 2008 and has been one of the Fed's most hawkish members. While Bullard will officially step down in mid-August, he has already stepped back from his position and has recused his position on the Federal Open Market Committee. He also will not be making any further public appearances or comments. Now, Bullard was not a voting member of the FOMC this year, but was still an outspoken and influential member of the Federal Reserve's overall leadership. Meanwhile, the St. Louis Fed has announced that they will begin searching for a successor, so stay tuned. Finally, let's take a quick look at the bond markets as investors celebrated the better-than-expected inflation news with Treasury prices rallying and yields falling. As of Friday's close, the two-year Treasury was yielding 4.77% down from that 5% level we saw recently, while the five-year Treasury yield fell to 4.05%. The benchmark 10-year Treasury yield was also lower at 3.84%. On the mortgage securities front, the latest prepayment data for mortgage-backed securities was released recently, and prepayment speeds increased slightly but still remain slow and steady overall. Breaking down prepayment activity by mortgage type, the average prepayment speed on 30-year Fannie and Freddie pools was between 6 and 6.5 CPR, while 30-year Ginnie Mae paper was slightly faster at just under 8 CPR. Average 15-year mortgage prepayment speeds were around 7 CPR for Fannie and Freddie securities, while bonds issued by Ginnie Mae prepaid faster at around 14 CPR. Finally, 10-year MBS prepayments came in at an average speed between 7 and 8 CPR. Keep in mind that the figures I just shared were averages and don't take into account when the mortgages were originated or their underlying coupon rate. There are plenty of mortgage securities with underlying collateral that were originated a few years ago before the huge rise in interest rates, and those are currently experiencing monthly prepayment speeds sometimes as low as three to five CPR. With interest rates where they are and the likelihood that they could be here for a while, I don't think we're likely to see any major shifts in overall prepayment speeds in the near future. Okay, let's move on to our main topic today. As I mentioned in a recent podcast episode, one request that I've received is to discuss the different types of fixed income securities that a community banker might consider for their institution's investment portfolio. So what I've decided to do is begin providing introductions to the various investment types available. In the coming weeks, we'll review a different investment type. Now, we're not going to go full deep dive with any of these, at least to start. My goal is to build your familiarity with the types of securities available so that as you're making investment decisions, you have an awareness of the tools in the toolbox. Today, we're going to examine one of the more common fixed income investments found in financial institution investment portfolios, and that's municipal bonds. We're going to cover what they are and the different types of muni bonds available, as well as explore some important tax implications, rules that you want to be familiar with. Now, there may be some of you that work for credit unions right now going, oh, I don't need to worry about munis. And that's true in many cases because of the institution's tax-exempt status. But there are some municipal bonds that could work in a credit union portfolio, so make sure you stick around to learn a little bit about them. Let's start with the basics of municipal bonds. Muni bonds are debt obligations issued by a state, county, or local government or their related entities. While they're issued by a governmental entity, don't confuse them with government bonds issued by the U.S. Treasury or the U.S. federal agencies or government-sponsored enterprises like Ginny Mae, Fannie Mae, or Freddie Mac. Unlike government bonds, an investor in municipal bonds does have exposure to credit risk as it is possible for an issuer to fail to make payments of interest and in principal. However, looking back at the historical performance, municipal bonds have an excellent track record overall with very low historical default rates. According to a study by Moody's Investors, the average default rate for all muni bond issues since 1970 is less than 0.1%, making a municipal bond default a rare occurrence. There are a number of reasons why a community financial institution might invest in municipal bonds. Typically, the main reason has been because the income from most muni bonds is exempt from U.S. federal income taxes. There's also the possibility of getting a state income tax break as well if the issuer is located in a state with an income tax and in the same state where the investor resides. This can make municipal bonds especially attractive, particularly for sub S Corp banks, where the income is passed through and taxed at the individual shareholder level. Other reasons for considering municipal bonds include that they are typically considered relatively higher quality, lower risk investments, and the fact that they allow community bankers to support local cities and towns either in or near where the institution operates. Municipal bonds are available in both bullet bond, meaning regular interest payments and principal at maturity, and callable bond structures. With callable municipal bonds, the lockout period, or the time until that first call, is usually quite long, generally between 5 to 10 years from issuance. In some cases, a municipal bond may be backed by some form of credit enhancement above and beyond the credit worthiness of the municipal issuer. Whether it's through insurance, state aid, or other forms of credit guarantees, these enhancements can improve the credit quality of the muni bond for investors while lowering the interest income burden for the municipality. Now, we can break down muni bonds into several different types. The first way to do this is based on their source of repayment to the investor. General obligation bonds, also known as GO bonds, are backed by the municipal issuers' taxing power and general creditworthiness. The funds for debt repayment come from property, income, and sales taxes that are collected by the municipality. Another type of municipal bond is revenue bonds. Revenue bonds are debt obligations issued to finance public works or other revenue-generating projects. Some examples of revenue bonds might include water and sewer systems, turnpikes, colleges and universities, hospitals, airports, electric utility divisions, and other similar projects. Unlike general obligation bonds, which are backed by the issuer's taxing power, revenue bonds are supported by the revenues received from the underlying project. Some revenue bonds are also backed by a municipality's general obligation pledge. In other words, there are revenues to support the bond, but the bond is also backed by the issuer's taxing power or general credit. An example of this might be a bond issued by a municipality for a water and sewer district. In this case, the bond may be backed by the water and sewer fees users pay, as well as the taxing power of the city or town itself. These type of municipal bonds are known as double-barreled issues because of the extra underlying support that they carry. So the source of repayment is one way to categorize municipal bonds. Another way we can separate them is by how the income on the bonds is treated for tax purposes. There are three basic categories we want to know about. The first category is bank-qualified, or BQ, bonds. With a bank-qualified bond, the interest income is exempt from federal income taxes. It may also be exempt from state income taxes if it's issued in the state where the bank resides. What makes bank-qualified muni bonds attractive is that banks that invest in them receive preferential tax treatment for the interest earned, hence the name bank-qualified. A second category of municipal bonds is known as general market munis. General market municipal bonds are also tax-exempt investments, fully exempt at the federal level and possibly exempt at the state level, as I mentioned with bank-qualified munis. The difference is in the tax treatment for banks. While a bank investor may choose to invest in general market municipal bonds, they may be less attractive than BQ issues due to the less preferential tax treatment. The last category of muni bonds is taxable municipal bonds. These are the type of municipal bonds that may be a consideration for credit unions because they're taxable. With a taxable muni bond, the interest on the bonds is fully taxable at both the federal and state levels. In some ways, they could be considered similar to high-quality corporate bond issues. Now, as I've mentioned a few times, the interest on many municipal bonds is tax-exempt. This introduces an important factor that we need to discuss, and that is knowing how to compare the yield on a muni bond with other types of fixed income securities. When analyzing tax-exempt munis, an investor needs to be able to do an apples-to-apples comparison with other investments. The way we do that is through what's known as the taxable equivalent yield. The taxable equivalent yield is a measurement that adjusts a tax-exempt municipal bond's yield to account for the interest income tax treatment. It allows for a more accurate comparison with other investments and allows an investor to answer the question, how much would a fully taxable investment need to yield to generate the same after-tax income as the tax-exempt security is now? Calculating the taxable equivalent yield on a muni bond is a three-step process. This is that mathy part of the podcast that I told you about earlier. The first step is determining a possible yield adjustment based on the type of bank and the type of municipal bond. It's called the TEFRA yield adjustment, and it's part of the tax rules. The TEFRA yield adjustment applies to C-corp banks for all tax-exempt muni bonds, For S-corp banks, the adjustment only applies to general market municipal bonds, not bank-qualified bonds. To determine the adjustment, an investor multiplies the bank's cost of funds, its federal tax rate, and a disallowance rate. The disallowance rate is 20% for bank-qualified munis and 100% for general market munis. So you multiply the cost of funds times the tax rate times the disallowance rate, either 20% or 100%. That's step one. Now remember, not all bonds may be subject to this step, specifically bank-qualified bonds purchased by S-corp banks. Step two is to adjust the tax-exempt yield if needed. To do that, we subtract the result from the TEFRA adjustment formula that we just talked about from the tax-exempt bond's yield. For example, let's assume we have a muni bond with a tax-exempt yield of 3.5%. We determine that the adjustment is needed, so we use the formula in step 1 and determine that the yield adjustment is 0.25%, or 25 basis points we would subtract that quarter point from the muni bond's yield. 3.5% minus 0.25% equals an adjusted yield of 3.25%. That's it. We've completed step two. And that brings us to the last step, step three, which is to convert the tax-exempt yield to a taxable equivalent. Now that we've determined any TEFRA-related adjustment and applied it to the bond's tax-exempt yield, we need to calculate the equivalent yield on a taxable investment that would generate the pre-tax income equal to the income from the tax-exempt bond. So how do we do that? The formula is to take the tax-exempt yield, or the TEFRA-adjusted yield, if that's what we're using, and divide it by 1 minus the effective tax rate. In math, it's known as the reciprocal of the tax rate. For example, if we use the adjusted yield I mentioned earlier, the 3.25%, and we assume that the bank has a 30% tax rate, then we would take that 3.25% and divide it by 1 minus 0.3 or 0.7 and get a taxable equivalent yield of 4.64%. Now, we have a number we can use to compare against other investments that are taxable, like government bonds, mortgage securities, corporate bonds, and so on. It may sound like a convoluted process, but if you don't make the adjustment to the yield, you'll end up comparing a tax-exempt municipal bond yield that is too low to other yields on taxable investments. And as I said earlier, we use this process for tax-exempt municipal bonds only. We don't need to adjust the yield on a taxable muni bond because its yield can already be compared to other investments since it's taxable to start with. Okay, that's enough math on the podcast for today. What about risks or other considerations if you're considering investing in muni bonds for your institution's investment portfolio? Well, there are a few things to keep in mind. First, municipal bonds are considered a slightly less liquid investment. It doesn't mean they're illiquid. It just means that they have less relative liquidity than other investments, such as U.S. treasuries and government agency bonds. This is one reason to consider what the maximum percentage exposure should be for the institution's portfolio if you're working on overall liquidity planning. The last thing you want to do is have a portfolio concentration that makes it more difficult to generate liquidity when it's needed. Another consideration is the option risk that a muni bond may contain. Depending on the current interest rate environment, a callable municipal bond may trade and be valued based on its maturity date or its call date. The problem comes when the two dates are far apart from each other. When that happens, it can create a potentially volatile situation if interest rates change and the bond shifts from the call date to the maturity date, or vice versa. That can create all kinds of headaches as far as duration and price sensitivity, not to mention planning for the when the bond's coming back to you for liquidity purposes. And this is something that many community bankers found out in the last year when muni bonds blew through their call dates and extension risk reared its ugly head. And finally, even though the credit risk exposure may be minimal, municipal bonds are subject to initial and ongoing credit and due diligence monitoring. This has been a requirement for many years, and financial institutions are expected to ensure that investments held in the portfolio meet an internally defined investment-grade standard. Financial institutions can't rely solely on the bond's credit rating to assess whether they consider a muni bond to be acceptable. As a result, investors need to conduct both pre-purchase and post-purchase analysis to demonstrate the issuer presents a low risk of default and is likely to make full and timely repayment of principal and interest. Municipal bonds are a great tool to have in the investment toolbox. They're considered a relatively high-quality, low-risk investment, and for some community financial institutions, they can also provide tax advantages. But it's also important to remember the risks involved, as minimal as they may be, and the need to do a little yield math to get an accurate picture of a muni bond's attractiveness for the investment portfolio. I hope that you found the information we covered today on Muni Bonds to be helpful. As I mentioned earlier, this is more of an intro and just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to managing the investment portfolio for your institution. In fact, it's just the tip of the iceberg, and there is so much more to learn and discover. And if you or a member of your team is newer to their role or simply looking to strengthen their fundamental investment skills, let me tell you how you can learn more through the Bond Basics course. Bond Basics is an online course that I created in collaboration with the Graduate School of Banking at Colorado, and it's designed to give you the essential knowledge you need to excel. The course is loaded with comprehensive material designed to equip you with a solid foundation in fixed income investing and portfolio management. When I created the content for this course, which includes some of what we discussed today, I thought back to the things I wanted to know early in my career. That's exactly what you'll get with Bond Basics. It's the course I wish had existed when I was first starting out with my bank's investment portfolio. When you register for the course, you'll receive all the lessons, materials, and resources you need to support your learning efforts. With Bond Basics, you'll learn essential concepts and gain insights that will help you boost your investment skills. To get all the details and enroll in Bond Basics today, head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash Bond Basics and let's start the journey of mastering the fundamentals to help you or your team member help your community financial institution. Well, I think that's going to do it for today. I appreciate you stopping by and checking in. Bond Investment Mentor is written and produced by me, Chris Nelson, and the information, views, and opinions expressed during the podcast belong solely to myself. Any ideas and strategies contained within the podcast are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, or legal advice. If you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe on any of the major platforms or through whatever podcast app you use. And if you think that someone could benefit from the information we covered today, please feel free to share the joy. If you have a question regarding anything that I covered, please email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com and I'll do what I can to help you out. For more information about fixed income investing and portfolio management, please head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com. You'll find articles, tips, and resources there to help you manage your institution's investment portfolio. And you can learn about the ways in which I can help you become better at what you do. And you can also find me on social media. On LinkedIn, I'm at Christopher Nelson CFA. And on Facebook, you'll find me at Bond Investment Mentor. I'd love to hear from you. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks again for stopping by. Have a good one.